Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Thanks for that wonderful offertory, Danny. Well, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving this past week with your families and that God was gracious to fill your own hearts full of gratitude as you got to enjoy the many good gifts that he has brought to you. This morning as we were singing, I was reminded of the second verse in Hark I Hear the Harps Eternal, where we sang, In my soul, though stained with sorrow, fading as the light of day, passes swiftly to that city far away. I thought about all the joys and sorrows that we get to experience together as a church, and my heart was filled with gratitude knowing that we get to pass together swiftly to that other shore of Jordan where we get to see Jesus face to face. Let me pray as we begin our time around God's word. Oh, great God and Father, we give thanks to you this morning because you have graciously given us life now. And in your son, you have given us life everlasting. And now you have graciously given us another opportunity to hear from you in your word. Help us this morning to learn by paradox that the way up is down. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. And that the valley is the place of vision. And from the valley, help us to behold the glory, the wonder, and the beauty of your beloved son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's the first of the Gospels, and that's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. Three times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus refers to children as those to whom the kingdom of God belongs. In Matthew 18, 3, he says, Unless you become like children, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. What are children like? Well, as a former child myself, I think I can confidently say that children are often unassuming, they're curious, and they often need help. My wife and I were recently over with our friends Chris and Courtney Shaw, and while we were chatting after dinner, their middle son, Quinn, came up and he tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and in his hand he was holding a jar of Play-Doh. He said two words, help, please. He had something he needed, but he couldn't get it on his own. And so he asked for help. At his young age, Quinn grasped the most fundamental principle for living in Jesus' kingdom. You have to despair of your own ability and rely upon someone else for help. This morning from our sermon text, we're going to see that it is only those who come to God like children, unassuming and helpless, who will receive his blessing in his kingdom. So let me give some brief background to Matthew's gospel before we get started, since we haven't been spending any time in Matthew's gospel, just want to give some brief context. 
Those of you that have been with us for the past couple of months, though, know that Brad has been preaching through the Old Testament narrative of 2 Samuel. And Brad has shown us throughout 2 Samuel that there are gospel soundings everywhere. If you pay attention, Brad is pointing us graciously to our Savior Jesus as he shows up in the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus told us, told his disciples, that all the scriptures are pointing to him. And so even in 2 Samuel, we see this. Well, Matthew's gospel begins with the, with the genealogy. For most, it just looks like a list of names, but if you carefully read this genealogy, you'll notice that Jesus has descended from the line of David that we've seen in 2 Samuel. And thus, Jesus possesses his place as the true king of Israel. Well, following this genealogy and making that connection and establishing Jesus as the true king of Israel, Matthew surveys God's providence over human history and in the preservation of this king, this Messiah, as he narrates Jesus' miraculous conception from a virgin, his protection against Herod through the flight to Egypt and the return to Nazareth. And then in chapter 3, he quickly jumps forward to Jesus' public ministry as John the Baptist announces him and prepares his way for Jesus. And then in chapter 4, you'll remember that Jesus endures many temptations from Satan. He's taken out into the wilderness, just like Israel back in the Old Testament. But rather than failing like Israel did, Jesus withstood every temptation, further solidifying his place as the true Messiah, the true King of Israel. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus proclaims the gospel message as he calls for repentance and announces the coming of God's kingdom. Rather than take up arms and establish a physical kingdom, Jesus calls for repentance to bring about his kingdom. And as Jesus goes on preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all sickness and disease, his fame spreads. You see in chapter 4, verse 25, that great crowds begin to follow him. The new king of Israel has arrived on the scene. The one that we've been reading about in 2 Samuel seems to be here, and there's much excitement. That's why these great crowds have gathered about him to hear what he's going to say, to see what he'll do next. And so, like Israel's great prophet Moses, you see chapter 5, verse 1, he ascends up onto a mountain. And he starts to preach. It's a paradoxical sermon that takes conventional human wisdom and flips it completely on its head. The standards seem high in this sermon, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. But they are requisite of all who would claim to belong to this kingdom. And to begin this sermon, Jesus sets forth eight character traits that mark kingdom citizens. And then he pronounces a blessing on all those who possess them. So find your place in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 2 and read through verse 5. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This morning, I want to persuade you from this text that the Son of God gives his kingdom and his favor to spiritual beggars. If you're looking for a main idea this morning, that's it. The Son of God gives his kingdom and favor to spiritual beggars. 
Our outline will show how spiritual beggars are point one, poor in spirit, point two, mourners, and point three, meek, taken straight from our text. If you look down in your Bibles, you'll notice that there are nine statements of blessing all the way through verse 11. But you'll also notice if you look at verse 3 that the promise of verse 3 says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then if you glance down at verse 10, you'll notice the same promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So even though there's nine blessing statements here, Matthew is showing us as Jesus's sermon is preached that there's this bracket of eight beatitudes, eight blessings that Jesus wants to teach us. So verses 11 and 12 then are not a ninth beatitude, but a continuation of the the eighth one. You'll see somewhat of a different structure here in the Sermon uh, on the Mount within the beatitudes. The first four beatitudes seem to be grouped together. They actually all begin with the same letter in the Greek alphabet. And so this would have been a rhetorical device that Jesus would have used for easy memorization so that people could take these and remember them and learn them. And the first four focus on neediness before God, while the other four deal with one's relation to others. Another key theme in Matthew's gospel is righteousness. And it's such a distinctive characteristic in Matthew's gospel that it's led some to see verse 6 as the centerpiece beatitude between these two different groupings of the beatitudes. Between our need and our relation to others is the foundational need to be made righteous before God. Well, in an ideal world, we would spend time exploring all of these eight Beatitudes, but this morning I've selected just the first three because they deal with particular aspects of neediness that I pray will prove profitable for us as we desire to be citizens of the kingdom who are dependent upon him alone as beggars for all that we are. We're often prone to ask, what do I need to do? Just like Nicodemus from John's gospel, but we must first ask, Who am I supposed to be? Well, first, kingdom citizens are to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word blessing literally means happy, but what's intended here isn't quite like the happiness that you would probably think about. Happiness in our day and age is circumstantial as we know. It can come and go depending upon our circumstances, But the blessedness of the Christian is unshakable, which is probably why the translator selected a word like blessed instead. We know from Psalm 1 that the blessed man is the one who delights in God as his chief end. And the first blessing that Jesus pronounces is on those who are poor in spirit. So to be poor in spirit simply means to be spiritually empty before God. To be poor in spirit means to be spiritually empty before God. You remember the scene of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18? The Pharisee is a righteous person who looks with contempt on the tax collector. He actually exclaims, thank God that I am not like this tax collector. For I tithe and I do good works and I fast And I do all these things for you, God. I am not like him who is an extortioner and unjust. But then Jesus turns our attention to the tax collector. And it says the tax collector standing far off by himself simply stood and he beat his breast 
looking up to heaven and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the one that Jesus says went, went down justified. That is a picture of what it means to be spiritually impoverished, to be poor in spirit, to know that you have nothing to commend yourself before God. But you just have to look up to him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Growing up in a Christian family will not save you. Going to church will not save you. Reading the Bible in a year will not save you. Taking the Lord's Supper will not save you. To enter into God's kingdom, you have to come with no resources of your own and cast yourself down at his feet and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Though outwardly the Pharisee has done all the right things and the tax collector has done evil things, it is the tax collector who is saved because he embraces poverty before the one who dispenses all spiritual riches. We know that Jesus himself embodied this type of poverty of spirit, for he said in Matthew chapter 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is dependent upon the Father for all things. If you read through the Gospels, take note of Jesus' prayer life. He knows that according to his flesh, he cannot have the strength needed, and so he depends upon his Father who gives him strength. All Christians are those who at one time embrace this poverty of spirit. There is no way into the kingdom of God that doesn't go through the door of poverty of spirit. If you were to see someone who was wearing a black uniform and a badge and they had a gun on their hip, you would know that they're a police officer, right? Or if you saw somebody walk in here with scrubs on and a stethoscope around their neck, you could reasonably suspect that They're a medical professional, right? Well, Christians are those who come with the clothes of an impoverished spirit. If you ever see a Christian, they will be marked by this characteristic. They will have about them a humble posture before God that knows they're dependent upon him for all things. I love the way that the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones diagnoses poverty of spirit. He says, if one feels anything in the presence of God except for an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced him. In other words, those who have truly come to face God can't help but find awareness of their poverty of spirit. No one looks out at the Grand Canyon or the expanse of the stars and can with integrity say, I'm a really big person. No, when you look out at the Grand Canyon, you're reminded just how small you really are. So it is with God. If you stand before God and you see him for who he truly is, you will recognize your place. You'll feel impoverished in spirit because you've beheld his glory. Just this morning in the equipping class, what was Nick exhorting us to do? To gaze at the beauty of God in the face of his son, Jesus. Nick said, glory begs. 
glory begs for lingering. We have to linger and to stare at God. This is one of the best ways that we can grow in becoming poor in spirit, of realizing that we are poor in spirit by looking and gazing at the wonder and the glory of God as he's revealed himself in the word. One of the best ways to diagnose an impoverished spirit is to look at your prayer life. When faced with problems, personal, financial, relational, or spiritual, do you find that your first instinct is to jump into problem-solving mode? Or do you fall on your knees in prayer? Do you regularly own and confess areas of weakness or sin in your life in prayer to God and to others? Even those things which may alter people's perspective on you. Are you even aware of shortcomings in your life? Have you taken time to pause and reflect on them? Do you regularly attend our Sunday evening prayer gathering, if you're a member of UBC? As our church as a whole grows to understand its own impoverished spirit, I trust that we'll grow in seeing attendance at our Sunday evening prayer gathering. We'll go from being less than 25% of our members there to upwards of 75%. Because as we mature as a congregation who understands that we don't have anything before God, then we'll come to him in prayer. We'll want to gather as a body to petition and pray together to ask for his help. This church cannot stand on its own. It doesn't matter how much money we have in our bank account. It doesn't matter how many people fill these pews. If we are not on our face before God begging for his mercy, we are nothing. when we feel our need for God and cast ourselves down before him. We are assured from his word that he promises his mercy and his kingdom, as the second half of verse 3 shows. You'll notice that there's a present tense linking verb there. Jesus says, these poor in spirit, theirs is now the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who embrace poverty of spirit receive God's kingdom now. Entering into the kingdom of God means entering into life as Mark 9.45 shows and as we've talked about. And it means that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son whose light shines and we have redemption in him now. And so those who beg will receive God's mercy and be brought into his kingdom now. And those who are poor in spirit will recognize their need for mourning as well. So let's consider that second point. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus' Jewish followers who would have been listening to this sermon likely would have thought of Isaiah 61 as he pronounced this blessing. In Isaiah 61, the servant of the Lord is anointed and This passage describes those in Zion who mourn their own sin and the sins of their nation. They long to be comforted by God and to to live in a world that's free from sin. And so to be a spiritual mourner, as Matthew 5.4 means, to feel an intense grief over the personal and corporate effects of sin and to feel utter dependence on God for comfort. To feel intense grief over the personal and corporate effects of sin. And then to feel utter dependence upon God for comfort. 
This is the type of grief which cannot be manufactured, but can only be intensely felt by those who have come to an end of themselves and know God to be their only source of comfort. Maybe you remember the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is what it looks like to be a spiritual mourner. To despair over sin in such a way that you shout your questions as a beggar of mercy, knowing that God is the only one who can help you. When was the last time you looked your sin in the face and begged God for mercy? When was the last time? Who will deliver me? God, I need your help. Or are you so busy or unreflective that you fail to see your sin? Can you recall the last time that you sinned? Spiritual mourners pause and reflect when they sin. They ask, what made me behave like that? Why did I get so easily irritated or impatient? Why did I assume that other person's motivations? Why did I feel the need to gossip or assume the worst about them? Why did that rash word come from my mouth? Why am I not able to control myself and my urges? Why do I harbor unkind, jealous, and envious thoughts toward others? Spiritual mourners are those who don't brush over their sin. They see their sin for what it is. Gross treason against a holy God. And so they pause and they humbly ask, why is my heart inclined this way? God, have mercy on me to grow, to be sanctified, to not commit this sin again. But spiritual mourners also mourn over the sins of others and the effects of sin in this world. Think of Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. He looked out at the people whom God had chosen, the people whom God had sent prophet after prophet to declare his word, the people whom God had now sent his very own son to save. And yet what do they do? They reject him. And what does Jesus do in response? He weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. He wants to be like a hen who gathers Jerusalem under his wing to comfort them, to protect them, to give them life. But they reject him. And this is cause for Jesus' mourning. Do you grieve the sins among us? Tonight in our church's member meeting, we're going to be considering two cases of church discipline. There are two among us who claim to be sheep, but have strayed from the fold and given themselves over to unrepentant sin. Do you feel sorrow in cases like this? Or is it just a part of church business? Were you planning to be here tonight? To grieve together as a church family over the destructive nature of sin. It was not supposed to be this way. Sin has a destructive effect, not out there, but even in here. It's always threatening us. But as we mourn it, we obey Scripture, we please the Lord, and we call wrong what is wrong. And finally, spiritual mourners beg for God's mercy and grieving sin's effects on suffering and death as well in this world. 
You know, we're a world that idolizes comfort and we're not good at mourning. While funerals used to be full of mourning, in fact, in the Old Testament, mourning was actually a vocation. You could hire mourners to show up at your house or at the funeral procession and they would wail in grief. Too often nowadays, not that it's wrong to celebrate the life of someone that we love who's passed, but we brush over death and rather than a funeral, it's only celebrations of life. We don't look death in the face and say, this is wrong. Death was not supposed to happen. Death is not supposed to have the final word. But Christians are those who are to look at death in its face, to see it, and to notice how gross it is. To notice how devastating it is. This is not how our Savior lived. John 11 is one of the most moving passages in all of Scripture. In it, Jesus looked at death in the face. He watched as it took the life of a beloved friend. He watched as it caused anxiety and grief for those closest to him. He watched as it showed the decaying nature of his creation. And what happened as Jesus stared death in the face? The Lord of life was stung by it. The Lord of life was stung by death. The incarnate Son who with the Father and the Holy Spirit collects the tears of all of his saints contributed his own tears. The Messiah who reigns over all things was for a moment overcome by grief. He wept. He mourned over the effects of sin in this world. If our Savior mourned in this way, shouldn't we? Just like looking at a pathology report that reveals a cancer diagnosis sobers us to the seriousness of our sickness. Looking at a report of our sin and the effects of sins will cause us, it will sober us to become spiritual mourners. There's a time and a place for humor in this life, but if you are unable to be serious or unable to deal, to live with at least a little reflection and sorrow on this life, you will never be a spiritual mourner. But on the flip side, if you are only a cynic or a nihilist, that is, someone who feels life has no purpose, then you are not a spiritual mourner in the proper sense because Jesus assures us that those who do mourn, look at the second half of verse 4, will be comforted. While Jesus says that the, the poor in spirit receive the kingdom now, the verb in this phrase from verse 5 is future-oriented. In other words, though there may be much mourning in this life, the tears will one day be wiped away, for there is comfort coming. And hope in the coming comfort grants present hope and comfort as we grieve now, even as sin still ravages our world. We know, as Revelation 21 tells us, that one day all tears will be wiped away and there will be comfort. You know, I've been so encouraged by Nick and Jada Rousseau recently. Though young, God is already teaching them the life of spiritual mourning. They are first and foremost those who have looked at their sinful condition and mourned their sin, 
looking to God to save them. But in his mysterious providence, he's caused them to mourn the effects of sin more acutely as they grieve the loss of their baby boy. It's good and right for us to come alongside them and to mourn with them, to not brush over death, but to look at death in the face and say, this is not how things are supposed to be. God, have mercy on us. Bring comfort, O God. We trust you that in your word you have told us that one day you will wipe away every tear from our faces and death will be no more. Come, Lord Jesus. That doesn't happen unless we look death in the face and see it for how gross it is and then mourn with those who are also grieving. As Christians, we protest the effects of sin because we know that in the words of J.C. Ryle, the grave itself is a conquered enemy. It must render back its tenants safe and sound the very moment that Christ calls for them at the last day. This is the comfort of the Christian. But know this, if you're here and you don't identify as a follower of Jesus or you feel as though you have not come to him as one who is poor in spirit, grieving for your sin. There will be no comfort for you in the end apart from Christ. You may find comfort in this life through possessions or people, but what awaits you after death? Six times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks of those who reject him And he says they will be cast into a place of outer darkness where there will be much weeping. Apart from Christ, there is no comfort for your tears. But the good news, the hope, the joy, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief who though he was with God from eternity past, took on flesh at a point in history so that as he came to live as a perfect sacrifice, you might be able to look to him, to trust in his death, in your place for salvation. And that because he rose from the dead, you too, when you die, will one day rise with him and your tears will also be no more. But this gospel truth is only for those who are poor in spirit. Those who come to themselves, who come to God with no resource of their own and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. My tears have no comfort. My tears have no place to go. So I cast myself down with you, recognizing I'm a sinner. But you are a great Savior and I trust in you to save me. You can be saved today and there can be comfort for you in the end if you trust in him. Why won't you trust in him? This very moment, God is being patient towards you, giving you a moment to repent, to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ for salvation, to join the people of God. We conclude our study this morning from the Beatitudes with 
meekness. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is perhaps the least intuitive of these three beatitudes that we've considered this morning. Most people, when they hear meekness, just assume the synonym humility. But it's much more specific than what's captured by the word humility. Meekness is a type of humble submission before God and his providence that leads to gentleness and generosity. Meekness is a type of humble submission before God and his providence that leads to gentleness and generosity among others. The meek are those who know themselves to be beggars for God's mercy, and so they don't assume that they are owed anything. They are gentle among others because they know that they don't possess any position of privilege or authority over another except what has been given to them by God. They are generous in dealing with the sins and offenses of others because they know that we're all sinners and that God is extremely, abundantly patient towards us in our sin. The meek don't overlook sin, but they do assume the best of others' intentions and they're patient toward them. They bear with them in love. The meek are those who, as we read in Psalm 37, whose portion is satisfied in God alone. So they don't need the things of this world such as possession. They don't need the things of this world such as the praise of men. The meek have chosen God and God alone to be their portion. They have received everything in him and they are confident of that. If you were to hold an iPhone flashlight up to the sun, which would be brighter? Clearly, the sun. The meek know themselves to be the iPhone flashlight and God to be the sun. They have no standing, no place. It would be utterly silly to consider yourself privileged or to have any position or posture or strength apart from what God has given to you. The meek know this. They are wholly dependent upon God as beggars for his mercy, and they've received him as their portion, so they don't need anything else from this world. America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, was a meek man. He took a stand for only allowing believers who had joined their church to partake in the Lord's Supper because there were many who were not admitted or who were not professing believers who were taking in the Lord's Supper. He took a stand and said, this is wrong. God's word instructs us that only believers are allowed to participate in this meal. And he was fired over it. In dealing with the firing and preparing to preach his farewell sermon, one of the members of the church who was sympathetic towards Edwards said this of him. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of this life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismension. His happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and his treasure was not only a future, but a present good. Edwards was a meek man, 
who knew God to be his portion. And who was Edwards imitating but our Savior, Jesus Christ? Though sinless for his entire life and possessing neither malice nor pride nor harm of others, he was unjustly tried and executed. When standing before Pilate in Matthew 27, do you remember the scene? Pilate urges Jesus to speak, but Jesus suffers silently. His complete dependence upon God for his mercy caused him to meekly entrust himself to God's providence which had put him there. He did not need to defend himself or to respond to the accusations. In witnessing this type of meekness, Matthew 27 records that Pilate was amazed. How could someone be so calm and gentle and composed and humble and quiet while facing the accusations that he did? Well, it's because he entrusted himself wholly to God and knew himself to be directly under God's will. Being meek does not mean being a pushover or just having a quiet personality. It is self-conscious. It is a self-conscious, spirit-enabled virtue of self-control and gentleness, trust, service to God and to others. I think you'll be helped by understanding meekness to be a self-conscious, willing to have self-control because you entrust yourself to a providential God who is ordering all circumstances. You know that any word spoken against you is not outside of God's direction. You know that any circumstance that befalls you is not outside of God's providence. You know that wherever you are, you are directly under and guided by God's hand of providence. And because you have him, you can stand quietly with self-control and restraint. Matthew Henry described meekness as being lambs for our own causes and lions for Christ's cause. When defending God or defending those who are weak or underprivileged, true meekness looks like having a bold and assertive attitude. But when defending yourself, if you are bold and assertive, it's likely not meekness. Do you see the difference? The same response, bold assertion, One is meek in the cause for God and the cause for those who are weak and helpless, but in the cause for yourself, it's pride. The scripture reading from earlier describes the meek person. I love the way that Nick set it up. The meek do not fret because of evildoers. They trust God and do good. They are still before him and refrain from anger. They wait for the Lord and take what God has given to them and they enjoy it while everyone else feels the need to fight for more and more, and as Robbie prayed, they're never content. The meek are not like this. It is the meek who inherit the earth. If you have discarded the love of work, the love of money, the love of approval, the love of all worldly things, any threat or criticism of these things will not affect you because your hope lies secure in God and in the inheritance you have received in him. And that confidence will only engender more meekness. Those who are confident that in Christ they will inherit a share of the heavenly places with God in Christ need not worry when their reputation or their status or their privilege or their possessions or any other worldly ideals are threatened. 
So how can we know if we're meek? How can we know if we possess meekness or still have room to grow? Ask yourself these questions. Are you easy to get along with? Are you flexible, agreeable, sweet, and lovely? Do those words describe you? Are you easy to get along with, flexible, agreeable, sweet, and lovely? Would your spouse agree with your assessment? Would your children agree with your assessment? If you have people who work under you, would they agree with your assessment? Would the members of this church agree with that assessment? True meekness knows that it is not worth being disturbed by things that are passing away. Would they say that you are often irritable, cross, frustrated, discontent? Do you jump quickly to self-justification when accused of wrongdoing or shortcoming? This one is the one that God pulled his arrow out, pulled it back, and shot it straight into my own heart. My personal lack of meekness often shows when my reputation is threatened. I feel constrained to speak and to defend rather than to just stand in humble submission before God, confident that in Christ I have everything that I need and that if there's criticism that's true, then God has used this person to bring it about for me. I prayed God would have mercy on us, on me. Do you often compare yourself, your work ethic, your parenting, your resources to others? Do you often feel burdened or weighed down in this life? Perhaps it is because you lack meekness. Jesus gives rest to those who are humble and lowly, but when we try to carry our burdens through endless effort and a graceless gospel, we're going to feel burdened. We're going to feel like we have to work ourselves up all the time. Do you find that you are often quick to speak when wronged or when you disagree with someone or something? Are you quick to speak? Or even if you don't speak aloud, do you find that you are quick to jump to internal condemnation or judgment of others, an assumption of their motivations? Each of these is a failure to exhibit meekness because you feel it is necessary to render judgment or to speak up as though God is unable to do something with your situation apart from your intervention. We feel the weightiness of how we measure up to these things, but if we beg for God's mercy, he will transform us into those who are meek. And perhaps one of the best ways to grow in meekness is to ask God to remind you of the second half of verse 5, to help you comprehend that one day in Christ you will inherit the earth. You will, as it were, possess all things in Christ, and so you need not fret about earthly things here below. You can gently, humbly, and graciously entrust yourself to God with meekness, trusting that he cares for you. You'll know a meek person when you see one, because just like Jesus from Matthew 27 or the story about Edwards, they're going to have a countercultural gentleness that is frankly baffling. (laughs) You see a meek person and it doesn't make sense. 
How can they be so gentle and kind and confident in God's promises that they don't feel the need to defend themselves in every situation? And yet they are bold and courageous when it comes for the cause of Christ. May God make us like this. It's no surprise that when Jesus describes his very heart in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, he says that he is gentle or meek and lowly and that all who entrust themselves to him will find rest. If you feel burdened this morning, know that you can come to Jesus, the meek man par excellence. You can put your burdens under him and he will carry them and give you rest for your souls. But only if you beg for his mercy and you know that you have need. As we wrap up our time together, I want to take a moment and to get a pulse on how you're feeling. Do you feel burdened and overcome with shame and guilt as you consider these three beatitudes because you know that you don't measure up? Or maybe you're sitting there, you hear my voice and you actually feel pretty cold and indifferent. You think, ah, yeah, it'd be nice to be this, but whatever. I haven't ever felt much in my life. Wherever you are on the spectrum, feeling burdened and shame, feeling prideful, or feeling cold and indifferent, I want to leave us with a word of encouragement and insurance. Jesus was the blessed man. And the good news is that your ability to be blessed by him as one who is poor in spirit, as a mourner, and as a meek person is not qualified by your own effort, but qualified by whether or not you have been united in him. As we have seen throughout, Jesus was poor in spirit as he depended upon his father. He was a man of sorrows, deeply acquainted with grief, and he was meek and lowly entrusting himself fully to God's providence. He is the supreme example and embodiment of the blessed man. And the Bible teaches us that in salvation, we are not just given redemption from our sins in Christ, but we are also united to him in his very person. Ephesians 1.3 says that in Christ, the believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, every single blessing and merit that Jesus himself obtained through his perfect life and death and resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God is also granted to you if you have faith in him. God sees your righteousness just as he sees Christ's righteousness. God sees your loveliness just as he sees the loveliness of his own son. God sees you with favor just as he looks on his own son with favor. Just as God spoke down to his son and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God looks at you if you have placed your faith in Christ and says, this is the one with whom I am well pleased. If you come to him with your efforts, building up a treasure trove of good works and throw them at the feet of God as though that will merit you to him, you have completely missed the point. But the good news is that if you entrust yourself to Christ, all of the wonderful spiritual blessings that God has granted to him 
the true blessed man, the true righteous one, become yours. Because we read in Ephesians 1.3 that in him, in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. When you grasp this, your cold indifference will be transformed to warm passion. Your shame and burden will be transformed to rest in Christ. When you truly grasp this, it will not lead you to take advantage of grace, but this grace will fuel your obedience. It will transform your desires. It will change the very things that you find lovely, and it will conform you more and more into the image of God's beloved son, Jesus. And then one day, when Christ returns and calls us home, we will see him as he is, and we will be with God in glory. Until that day, don't fail to be beggars. Know that you are weak, and in your weakness, and in your begging, God will give you his kingdom and he will give you mercy as you depend upon him. Let's pray.